Welcome to the Lead Defend Podcast, a show designed to help you grow in faith and leadership as you navigate the stages of young adulthood. We address important faith topics and provide practical life tips, helping you build up your faith as you engage a changing culture. Now, here are your hosts. Hey, this is Ryan Brock. We're here with Jay Warner Wallace, and we're getting ready to do Lead Defend. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, uh, but I'm looking forward to it. Jim, tell us kind of about, about who you are, where you're from. Uh, I'm from Los Angeles County. Um, worked there for my entire career, working uh, most of it was spent doing cold cases. Those are just unsolved murders. Um, so these things stay open because by statute. So we have to kind of go back and revisit these occasionally. And we have a list, you know, in our agency. Uh, along the way, I became a Christian, and uh, you kind of using some of the same skills that you use to investigate cold cases. And I started writing about it, but not for a number of years. I think I was probably maybe ha- maybe t- 10 years in <laughs> before I ever thought about writing it. As a matter of fact, I was training high schoolers uh, to, to defend their what they believe, to defend Christianity uh, at universities because we were taking our kids to UC Berkeley. Because it's a good place to go to kind of see if they can hold up to <laughs> sure, the challenge, yeah, yeah. right? You think it's not going to be – it's not usually as hostile as it kind of sounds like it would be. Yeah. It's really more apathy, you see, mm. especially once the student body. So if you mm. were to go on a campus of UC Berkeley or um, University of Wisconsin-Madison is kind of another, yeah. you know, or University of Colorado-Boulder or, you know, different places where it's like – a little less friendly toward Christianity. It's not so much that you're going to encounter uh, students who want to kind of punch you in the face. Um, you might have some. Profess- I mean, some of those maybe, but you might have some professors, right, who would push back. But students are more apathetic than anything else. Yeah. Like, I don't care. It's stupid. I don't sure. believe it. Why, do, why should I care? Right. I don't want to talk about it. So it's it's a good training ground for for young Christians to either overcome apathy or learn how to make a, a defense against some, which could be hostile, uh, pushback. Sure. And I was doing that with uh, another apologist named Sean McDowell. Okay. And Brett Kunkel, who you've had here. Brett's yeah. actually the one who invented these. Together we worked to invent the Berkeley trip, but Brett was doing these kinds of trips to Utah. Yeah. Yeah. And he started taking my group, and I said, hey, we need one for atheism. Uh, that's great for theology. The trips right. to Utah are great for theology, but we needed one that was going to help our kids with philosophy and mm-hmm. atheism. So that's how this Berkeley trip came up. And, and yeah, so it was, been a, it, was, it was a great trip. I was on one of those, and Sean McDonald said, you should write a book about this. Hmm. And I just I was training the kids on the way. And I thought, um, I don't really have time. But uh, my wife said, I'll give it a shot. And so I ended up writing the first book, uh, Cold Case Christianity, when I was about almost 10 years ago. Gosh, so that 10 started. Years. Yeah. So now we've written eight books. All of them uh, deal with either training young people or just making the case for Christianity. Yeah. And so you've been featured on Dateline, uh, solving yep. cold cases, yep. doing all yep. that stuff. Yep. And I, so... I get I get photographs occasionally. I, uh, a guy named Tim, Tim Stratton, who's an apologist <laughs> in Nebraska, was at the gym last week, and he sent me a picture of one of the episodes still on the wall of the gym. You know, they're, they're watching TV <laughs> at the gym. <laughs> That's awesome. And these old episodes pop up. So. so so, when did your passion really shift to saying, hey, I, I want to train folks in apologetics? Um, I think because I was I was, I, was a youth, I, I followed I served in my kids in my, in my church in my kids ministries so yeah. so you start off you know their kids are in elementary ministry so I'm doing Sunday school then they become you know uh, junior hires and now I'm taking over that interim ministry and then I became their youth pastor I just kind of followed them up because I was I got saved when they were probably in the third grade okay so by the time they were in high school I'd already completed seminary wow so then I was in a position to kind of help. Sure. Um, so, um, and a lot of the the way that I came in by examining the evidence, I just 
explain to them. You know, I, I, I really, when I first started, I did not think the evidence was going to be important to them. Mm. So I had an art background. So our, our Sunday experiences were experiences. I mean, they were, depending on the series we were in, I was crafting every aspect of how this was going to look, how wow. it's going to feel, how it's going to sound. And so we wanted a five-dimensional, you know, five senses kind of experience on Sunday because I was convinced that that was what these young people would respond to. And sure. it turns out, I think we graduated a bunch of atheists by you know, the first two <laughs> years. And it just didn't—I mean, the, by the time they were in, in university, one semester in, yeah. they were no longer Christians. Wow. And so I realized, okay, whatever we're doing, it's not—it's that's the worst way to do it. And it was just because I, although I had an experience where I came in, my my background was evidential. I became a Christian because of the evidence, but I just didn't think that that was going to be helpful to them. This is before I was taking these trips with Brad. Sure, right. So I was doing all stuff that wasn't really grounded in the arts. Yeah. And when I saw how ineffective that was mm. at equipping young people to stand strong, um, even you know even while they were with us, they probably weren't with us. They were just enjoying that Sunday service sure, in sure. the community. Uh, we shifted all of it, and I simply went back to what I. Okay, here's how I became a Christian. Here's why I'm a Christian based on these evidences, and I just stayed there. And we had a remarkable change in our ministry mm. by just focusing on the. So evidence. we just got out of a panel where we heard you get to talk a little bit, and mm-hmm. and you talked about how the culture has shifted, mm-hmm. and this generation is facing an just an incredibly different culture than what generations previous were facing. And so, tell us how that has played a, a role on the faith of younger folks. Well, I, I, I think that I wonder some, like, for, just, you know, for example, if I was to do a video tomorrow on YouTube and I was to really focus on either gender expression, identity, homosexuality, any number of these hot topic sexual mm-hmm. issues, do you think that would do, how, or I do a video on the resurrection of Jesus, which of these two do you think is going to get more views? Oh, the, yeah, okay. sexuality. Well, so I, why would we be surprised then that young people are going to be challenged more sure. by those claims of culture than they are about whether the evidence is true? So we, now it turns out that I want to start with the evidence because that's what grounds this as more than just my subjective view. Yeah. So we, we can do a whole conference, for example, where we just focus on the hot topic, like here's what Christianity teaches about identity. Sure. Here's what Christianity teaches about sex or about the relationship of men and women or about marriage or whatever this is, right? We could do that. And I think I'm afraid, though, that to a, to a culture that really sees everything as a matter of subjective truth claims, this is your truth, this mm-hmm. is their truth, this is my truth, this is his truth, that this just becomes like, well, that's just your truth. That's just the Christian view. As if it's no better or worse than Absolutely. anyone else's view. Option. It's just another option in the smorgasbord of sure. options. And I think that's what's changing, right? So I, I have to ground this and show that this uh, worldview we hold is grounded in reality. Mm. And, and so that it has a, a, a stronger... And I think just making that distinction between subjective and objective truth is something we're going to have to do mm-hmm. with a, a generation that doesn't see the distinction or doesn't word. think there are any objective truths. So I'm spending a lot of time really kind of making that case first. You know, I've been watching um, the top, like, um, I get involved still in, in either helping or consulting on big cases. Mm-hmm. And and I, I was asked to just do a very, very small part of a big case in Los Angeles recently. It was on all on YouTube. It was the national press. It was this crazy case. And I thought, I'm watching these cases and wondering, are we going to get to a point where jurors are, are not going to... If, if you don't believe anything is really objectively true, yeah. that everything is a matter of perception, 
Well, this eventually trickled mm. down into the jury system where we don't we can't even impanel it a jury. The courtroom, yeah, yeah, that could say, well, yeah, everything's a matter of opinion, and, and your opinion as a prosecuting team is just no better than the defense's. I mean, we could get to a place of paralysis based mm. on this shift in the way we see truth, and that's what it is. It's a paralysis. It, it, it doesn't mean that you've sided one way or another. It means. There's indecision most of the time. Well, it just means that I, I, I could. Well, I still haven't seen it yet in, in juries. Sure. And so I'm still encouraged that that people will emphatically look at evidences and say, no, the sequence of events is objectively this based on the evidence, and that mm-hmm. my personal view, I don't like the person who's involved in this sequence, does not yet color the the way we see the sequence. Does that make yeah. sense? In yeah. other yeah. words, yep, absolutely. We have to be able to demonstrate by way of evidential uh, claims that a certain series of events occurred. And these are not open for, I mean, we can demonstrate this objectively that we've already locked that down. Okay, here's what happened on Tuesday from eight to 10. Well, I just kind of wonder, we get into a place where um, the grounding for this kind of thing is gonna get too slippery where we won't be able to do that, but it hasn't yet. So I think that's one of the things when the the rubber meets the road and it always meets the road in these jury trials, Mm -hmm. we still have a sense that, yeah, we could have these views about morality. We can have these views about our personal life. But when it comes right down to it, when someone's life's on the line, you know, and that, that verdict's going to put you in jail the rest True. of your life or put you to the death penalty, mm-hmm. well, now suddenly we snap back into a world that, that where there are objective truth claims and, and we can demonstrate the truth of these. And so the question is, so I try to tell, help, help people see is that the claim that God exists is not a subjective truth claim. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, brown glasses are are the best glasses. That's a subjective claim. I can yeah. make that claim, but you may not be brown, mm-hmm. right? But that these are glasses is not an objective. Cl- it's not a subjective claim. That's an objective mm-hmm. claim. So some opinions are grounded in subjects. Like you say, chocolate chip cookies are the best dessert. I don't know. I just ate a brownie. I know. I saw that. I want to know where you got it because I I didn't see that. You didn't get one. There's there's another one. Grab. We can grab. We'll find one. Get one. Yeah. So, but that's the whole point. Is that I? That's a a claim that is grounded in the subject. Mm -hmm. But the cure for tuberculosis is isoniazid. I cannot say. Well, I prefer to have Tylenol. Well, I don't get to decide if that's the cure. It's mm-hmm. not grounded in me as the subject. It's grounded in the object called uh, ice You can prefer it, but you'll face the right. consequences. Yes, yeah. you'll face the consequences. So, so, so God you... exists is a claim that I cannot make it so by changing my mind. Mm. Yeah. It may not be true. It could be an objectively false claim, but it's not a claim that I decide as the subject. It's true on the basis of the object called God. Either he exists or he doesn't mm-hmm. exist. So we have to help, I think, young people to make these kinds of distinctions, and that's where I think the, the, the culture is shifting a little yeah. bit. So how do we help them? How do you communicate that? You mentioned how you know uh, objectivity is rooted in the reality of the way things are. We live in this subjective culture, and so how, how do we communicate that, no, everything's not just subjective? How, how do we help those people that don't? It's like, well, I don't care about the way that it is. This is how I feel. Well, okay, so th- they can still say that. That's okay. Yeah. I mean, I can understand how I might deny an objectively true thing because I don't like the way it makes me feel. Yeah. Like, people are going to still do that whether right. you convince them that these two things exist or not. So mm-hmm. so I would say that, yes, yeah, so when it comes to objective truth claims, we have to at least define them. I don't use the word absolute truth. I use the word objective truth. Why? Because objective claims are grounded in the objects under consideration. That's mm-hmm. why we call them objective Subjective claims are grounded in the subject who holds the opinion. So I can say that, like I said, chocolate chip cookies are the best dessert, mm-hmm. but that's not ground. That's a matter of opinion. You might right. disagree with me. But if I said that isoniazid is the cure for TB, well, now that's grounded in the object. 
Mm -hmm. uh, here's a good way to look at it. Can you change the claim by simply changing your view? If you can, well, then it's a subjective claim. Yeah, I cannot keep that, that's ice a good and I, That's a good filter yeah, right. for, for people to understand. The other way you can see is simply, can I test it? So can I, um, if I say my car is white, well, I, can I change the color of my car by saying, uh, I think, I, I, I feel like it's blue. Well, you could say that, but if I go outside and it's white, it's white, mm -hmm. right? It's grounded. I cannot change it. Now, you can also test it by going outside to see. Yeah. Now, you might go outside and see that the car is actually brown. So now it's a false objective. There are false objective claims. I could say my car can fly to the moon. Okay, that's still not a subjective claim. That's right. an, a claim about the object of my car, but it's a false objective claim. So the claim that God exists is an objective claim, but it could be a false claim. Now, it could Elon be an objectively did send false a car claim. to the moon. That's true. I mean, we, we, <laughs> yeah. we got to admit that. Times have changed. Yeah, times have changed. Yeah, true. But you get the idea yeah. here. So so I think we have to do is kind of teach our students the theories of truth yeah. and then how to distinguish between them. So there's yeah. a couple of theories of truth here, right? One of the theories of truth is, is emotivism. That's how I feel mm -hmm. is what makes something true, right? But we all know that there are some things that, that your feelings have no impact. At, you can't trust your feelings about certain things. Mm -hmm. uh, do you ever have an irrational fear of something? Mm -hmm. Sure. There's all kinds of people with irrational fears. Does it make that thing true? You might think that spiders are the worst, that you're afraid of spiders or you're afraid of the dark. So these are things you cannot trust just your emotions to make decisions for you. So you could discover some things by way of emotion, mm -hmm. but you could never discover all things this way. Right. Some of these people will say it's a matter of empiricism, like this idea that, you know, I can only trust things I can discover with the sciences. But even that claim cannot be itself discovered with science. Yeah. That's a claim you have to presume before you even begin. So I, I could say at least there's one thing I know you don't have to have science to demonstrate is true. Yeah. The idea that science is needed to demonstrate something is true. It's right. self-refuting. So there's a couple of ways we want to show the, 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 the academia will say this is the theory, either empiricism or emotivism um, or some kind of a form of pragmatism or utilitarianism or you say, hey, it's true because it works. Couldn't you yeah. say, I know that isoniazid is the true drug because we tried everything else, doesn't work it works. Therefore, because it works, that's what makes it true. Mm -hmm. So uh, pragma pragmatic theory works. That's a good way to determine truth. Well, for some things, but not for everything. I mean, I've told convenient lies that work, yeah. and they, they solve the problem. Sure. doesn't yeah. make it true. Right. So you can only – but there's one version of truth called correspondence theory that actually is works all the time, and it's simply the correspondence between what you claim is true and what really is. When one is equal completely to the other, it corresponds precisely to the other, you have the truth. So I can, for example, be outside this room and make the claim that there are four mics on the table in this room. When I come in the room, if I discover there are actually four mics on the table, well, now, now my claim matches what is real, is corresponds sure. to reality. Yeah. And I have a truth claim. And so what we're trying to say to young people is, okay, so look, do we? I have some beliefs about God. Are they equal to what really is? Do yeah. they correspond to the reality? I have some beliefs about the Bible. Do they correspond to the reality? And so I think we just have to kind of show that our worldview it does correspond to it. That's what I love about Christianity is that it— in every way you could look at, you know, if it's biblical anthropology, if it's the nature, you know, the nature of our fallen sin nature, all these things are described the way they really are. Now, I would have said, as an, I was an atheist until I was 35, and here's what I would have said about that. I would have said, yeah, I do think there are some things 
in an ancient text like the Bible that will describe reality because it's had thousands of years to observe human nature and simply record it. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean it's divine. Sure. It just means that, yeah, there's a lot of ancient wisdom books, and the reason why they are wise is because they've been vetted by time and culture. You observe things enough, you can make some observations. It doesn't mean it came from God. It just means you're watching. So I still would have said, though, even as an atheist, that the Bible was describing at least something about human nature. You know, I think there's a lot of my friends as secularists would say that, no, humans are basically born good as a clean slate, corrupted Mm. by their environment, corrupted by their parents, corrupted by their cultures, corrupted by systems. But I don't think if you've had kids, you know that doesn't really line up with the reality. I mean, you don't have to teach your kids to be selfish little jerks. We start off as selfish little jerks. That's that's kind of our default position, right? And we have to teach our kids to be patient and kind and not to be so self-centered that the entire thing centers on you. You got to teach that to kids because that's not our human nature. It turns out the biblical description is much closer to mm. how we, who we really are, and that's I think we got to help our, our young people to see this. Yeah. That's big. Well, so you do apologetics and you travel all around the world, uh, have the freedom to speak at Lead Defend. We're excited about mm-hmm. that. But you're also a family man, so tell us a little bit about your family. Well, so I, I've been with my wife for 43 years, wow. and uh, we weren't married all that time, uh, but uh, I'm married now, let's see, 34 years. Okay. So we were together almost a, a decade before we got married, um, and uh, we're, we're together about 18 years before we became Christians. So it's been a great ride. I, I just I love marriage. Uh, I speak a lot about marriage now. I didn't think I was ever going to do that. Wow. I don't think I felt like I was uniquely qualified to do that. You know, if you want me to talk about how you put evidential cases together, <laughs> well, I do that for a living, so I, I can probably help <laughs> you with that. But when it comes to marriage, I mean, I don't have a, a, a degree in counseling. Mm. That is not you know my my pedigree, um, but I, I I try to watch things really carefully, yeah. and I try to in my mind always make cases for why I had to do a certain thing, why what the next step should be, um, why things work, why things don't work. I'm always trying to puzzle that together, and, and if I wanted to do that again, how would I describe yeah. this for others? So yeah. when it comes to marriage, I you know, I do get a chance now to talk about well what That's what has incredible. been helpful for us. And I'm always systematizing things, right? Like, so, okay, so this is why this works, you know, this yeah. particular view. Um, so now I get a chance to do a lot more. I have four kids. They're all grown and out of the house. Yeah. So, um, so you're living life. Kids are out of the house. <laughs> know, you right? can do what you want. Yeah, well, I mean, I do think that it's it's uh, when you're married, the goal ought to be that you um, pour into this relationship so consistently yeah. over all those years that you aren't two completely different people when you finally just rediscover each other at it's the true. end of raising a family. Yeah. And I think for a lot of us, you know, that does happen, mm-hmm. where if you look at your wedding pictures, I, mean, I was just looking at a picture the other day from 1985. We were on a trip in Germany, and I'm looking at us, uh, Susie and I, and we had been together about six years at that time. And, and I'm looking at the two of us, and we're super young. I mean, I don't have a gray hair on my head. Okay. <laughs> Which is not true now and for the folks now. that are yeah. not going to watch yeah. the video. Yeah, I, I don't think so, it's true for me now. Yeah, <laughs> okay. So, so I look at it, and I think, well, okay, so what? So, so I, you, you, when you age, you don't really age in your mind so much as you age just physically. And so you still feel like you're that person you were in your 20s. 
And you still have all those kinds of like, you know, you think you can do all these things. Yep. And of course, now you're not that right. age anymore. But so I'm looking at that photograph and I'm just thinking, I, you know, my hope is that I, I want every day to make sure I don't move too far from that couple. Because wow. that couple was crazy in love. And I, I don't want to be at the end of this and feel like it's there's any like drop in that, mm-hmm. in that you know, that relationship. But it's, it's what do you do in those 40 years, though? Yeah. To to stoke that and, and so we've been married now how that. long? So we've been married thirty four. Okay. So Brock and I, I work with college students. Brock works with young adults and uh, students also, and and these students are hoping, longing, saying, ah, one day I, w- I want to be married. I got to meet the yeah. one. And so yeah. So uh, what what does that look like? What what sets you up for a successful marriage? Well, what I think you have to be you have to, super, you have to be intentional, right? Yeah. There's a, a talk show host uh, who we've been listening to for probably 25 years in Southern California, and she's well known on cable, on Sirius uh, uh, FM, but maybe not so well regionally known. Her name is Dr. Laura. Laura Schlesinger is her name, and so she's I know, always. I know Dr. Laura. Okay, so yeah. she's always you know her thing, and she's pretty, she can be pretty cut right to the chase. Yep. Okay, I mean, someone will call in with some. So I, I can almost tell as soon as they call in and they'll talk about their marriage. I'm thinking, oh. They have no idea what they're about to. They, oh. just, they just basically laid down in front of the buzzsaw <laughs> and have no idea what was coming. Uh, but she's just really direct. Yeah. And one of the things she'll often say is, "You got to choose wisely and treat kindly." And well, that simple expression is so true. And and I think what happens is I do a lot of marriage counseling now, where it's really clear that we don't often uh, we're not as intentional about the importance of marriage and what we're looking for in our spouse yeah. so that we can make wise choices going in. And then it's much harder to spend, because once you're in, I think you're committed. You're in the yeah. marriage. I mean, I believe in a biblical Absolutely. marriage. I knew for myself, but long before I was a Christian, because we were together 18 years before we became Christians, I was way, my God before I became a Christian was marriage. Mm. Like I wanted our marriage to be the best marriage. And because that was my goal and that was my priority, you know, I made really conscious choices about who I was going to marry. And if you do that, if you're really intentional, it is easier to treat kindly, right? You're still going to have all the bumps that come with life. And it turns out it's usually distractions that make marriage relationships more difficult. If you've got financial concerns, word. right? They're distractions. They are burdens sometimes. I don't want to call them burdens because sometimes kids can be that thing mm-hmm. that's like more you're putting in your backpack. Sure. Right? And you're carrying these backpacks of responsibility. Responsibility. Yeah, it's responsibility. So, so how do you, responsibility is probably the better word. How do you word. talk to a high school, college student about even now starting to choose wisely? Well, first of all, you have to have a world. So the first most important, we talked about this in our uh, session tonight, just these trajectory decisions, the decisions you yep. make early in a uh, in a journey are, are more important. The same decision you make 30 years later has less impact because yep. you're already closer to your goal. But when you make a bad move early, it can take you off the mark altogether because the trajectory matters. And the first trajectory decision really is worldview. So it's about making sure that you share a worldview that transcends the difficulties you are going to encounter. So for us, not being Christians, that worldview was marriage. We didn't. We our both of our families were broken. Uh, both of the marriages of our parents were broken, and we just made a commitment that that was never going to happen. Uh, it's it, put this way: that experience growing up was severe enough and sure. memorably bad enough that it would have been a motivator for me. Regardless, it Regardless, was always yeah. fresh in my mind that I didn't want that. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was terrible, and I did not want that for my kids. I did not want my kids to go through what I did. So yeah. because that was this one transcendent thing that was always on my mind, it did help us. 
because before I knew God, I at least held coincidentally a high value in, in marriage. I would have really, I think, would have lived pretty close to what I would call a biblical marriage, but not even knowing that it was such yeah. because I had this other high value. So I think the first thing you have to ask our young people is, do you have a, a strong biblical worldview? You realize that, so, so here we are at a table in front of us here. And uh, on this table, this is say this is the entire country. 100% of the country is represented by the table. Well, if I put a large mat on this table that covers about 60% of the table but leaves 40% uh, uncovered, that's the church right now in America. And that mat is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And the surface of the table is where people are jumping out of the church. They get over here on the table. They're, they'll say that they have no religious affiliation. We call these the nuns. They check none on the box when it talks about religious affiliation. Yep. We are decreasing at about a percentage a year. So every year you can go 10 years down, this has been pretty consistent for the last 15 years, you will see we're decreasing. That mat is getting 1% smaller every year. The blank table is growing by that percentage, right? It's being that much more exposed. So these are now these are not necessarily people who, are un, un, uh, who don't believe in God. As a matter of fact, I've heard someone recently called them the sums instead of the nuns because they have some yeah. view of a higher power okay. or a divine entity, yeah. but they don't think it's anything in the uh, plethora of, of religious worldviews. Yep. They just make up their own version of God. So they have some beliefs. But so there's just six, let's look at the 60% mat for a second. If you ask those people who self-identify as Christians, that 60% size mm-hmm. mat, what does that even mean? Like, what does that mean about the deity of Christ, a substitutionary atonement? Uh, it, all of the classic, historic, creedal claims of Christianity, only about 20%, according to Barna, hmm. could actually even answer these right. and truly hold a Christian worldview, although they claim a Christian identity. Sure. Okay, so uh, how many of your kids do you think in our youth groups are in there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They claim something they don't even know. Exactly. So if you said, well, are you going to select a spouse through your Christian lens? I'm not confident they have that a they Christian have a Christian lens. lens. Yeah, that's a good word. So here's what's happening. It turns out that when you measure that 20% mark, I don't think that church is getting much smaller. That's the remnant that, that's, that's always very been true. there. So the mat is getting smaller, but the, if I had a cup or a bowl on the mat that represents 20%, that bowl is probably about the same size as it's always been. Mm-hmm. But this culturally acceptable version of Christianity that was favorable, you want to run for office, you better say you're a Christian. <laughs> you want to do this, you better say it's you're a Christian. It's a difference in those who are dabbling and those who are dedicated. That's uh, right. And so what's happening is I think our kids will say that I have this view, of, but they don't even— they couldn't even catech- In other words, they, they couldn't even develop a theology for marriage or yeah. a systematic theology for anything. Sure. And, and there's the problem, is that you don't hold the first trajectory decision is what is true about the world, is do you hold a Christian worldview? Mm-hmm. The second decision, I think, is marriage, is spouse. You're going to spend the rest mm-hmm. of your life together. Now, when I say spouse, some people are never going to get married. That's okay. Sure, because absolutely. Paul would say you're now married to Jesus on the mission field. Mm-hmm. You're going to be used by Jesus. And that's he gives you those two alternatives. But if you look mm-hmm. at it, Paul really only has one of two. Uh, you know, you're married to a spouse or you're married to your mission, sure. right? Yeah. And so I get it that some people are going to be, but my point is that marriage link that I'm going to either do one or the other yeah. is the next decision you make after you lock in a Christian worldview. But the problem is, is I think we graduate our students without ever, like for example, think about youth groups. Every youth group you've ever led or ever been a part of. Okay, do you have midterms? Finals? Nope. Nope. No, we don't. Now, what you think about this? If I was, if your goal 
in the church was to teach your kids algebra. But they knew up front there would never be a test. You were yeah. all going to get an A. Hmm. Do you really think they'd be paying attention much? No, because they've got classes where there is a test. Sure. They've got aspects of their life where they are going to get tested. So the first thing we did was say, well, okay, we got to design tests. Hmm. It's not going to be a written. Well, there might be a written test if you want to go on that trip with us yeah. to Berkeley. You're going to be studying for eight weeks. There'll be a written test. you got to pass the test. you got to read these books, and then you get to go on the trip. And the trip is really the test because that's where we're going to find out if you can do this or not. Yeah. And I'll tell you, we had kids. This is grew. The last trip I took, I took 50 students. It was the most I could handle because I have to have a lot of leaders to Absolutely. handle that group. How big is that group? Where are you going to yeah. sleep? How are you going to do this, right? Yeah. How many cars is it going to take? I mean, that, it, was, it was a logistic nightmare, okay? But uh, it just grew because if, if students had been once— as a freshman, they would go every year and mm. bring their friends because this is how transformational those trips were. Sure. Wow. Because we're providing a test, and this is what we're not doing in youth group. And by the way, our young people are expected to hold this high bar. They're taking physics. They're taking biology. They can handle a bunch. We get them over here, and we don't even – we throw it across the center of the plate at 40 miles an hour, and we don't even care if they swing. Mm. That's a good word. Yeah, we just have to raise the bar of expectation. Yeah. Yeah, but I, but I really like the – the fact that you said that these students are making decisions now that affect the trajectory of their life, mm -hmm. and they know that academically, they know no, well, they do. If They've been I, convinced that they if need I to fail pay out of this, if I don't make this score on this ACT, my hopes of this school are That's gone. That's right. That's right. But we don't often consider that with our faith that At all. I'm right now setting the trajectory for where I'm going to be in 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Well, you know, part of it is, I think, is that we don't do, so I talk about all the time, it's important, if you want passion in your kids, you got to ask two, you got to give two whys for every what. And we don't do that with our students. Mm. We usually give them a what. What is true about Jesus? What is true about the Bible? What is true about God's nature? What is true about this? What, 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 what? Well, the first why that activates a what is, well, why? Do you think that's true? Because mm. everyone's got a what. Mm -hmm. Everyone you meet now is going to have a what. And it's just their subjective what. It's just what that's that's your what. That what's good for you, <laughs> but it's not good for me. So I gotta have a why. Like why is this true? Evidentially, you believe that God is triune. That's your what. But why do you believe that? Mm. It seems logically inconsistent to me. So give me the reason why you think that's true. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who reject the triune nature of God. I see because they're on my uh, my yep. YouTube channel <laughs> making comments. So they, they'll argue with me vociferously about whether or not God is Jesus is God or just a creation of God. And they call themselves Christians. So the question then becomes, well, why is that true? So that's the first why. Second why is, okay, great. Why should I care? Mm -hmm. Because all of this just sounds like theology from a faraway land for faraway people. Yeah, sure. I got to know how does that affect me? Yeah. Like, what difference does this make? What difference does it make if there's a triune God am I tomorrow when I'm on Instagram? Yeah. What what difference does it make? Uh, we got to help our kids to see the word. two whys for every what, and then that's what these trips kind of do too. Because now it's like, now the rubber meets the road. This is why this is so important. You just have these kinds of conversations, and you're just flat-footed. You don't even know what to say. and and But you will if you spend time actually thinking about this. By the way, look, I'm, I'm a big sports fan, and I think I told you my wife's a big football fan, and we watch a lot of sports. And we watch a lot of football. 
I love. So you're a Rams guy. I, I mean, am right now. But to be honest, I'm more. I'm, I'm actually a Cowboys fan because. What? My, yeah, I know. You know why? <laughs> okay. Well, look, I, I think what's happened for me is Red Zone. Uh, that NFL sure, show. Sure. Okay. Uh, Scott Hansen. I don't know if you know. He's a mm-hmm. very, yep, very yep. committed Christian guy. Loves apologetics. So he's an wow. endorser on our. Wow. Yeah, I didn't great, know that. Great guy. Really great guy. Super smart. Uh, super energetic. He's, Scott Hansen's the real deal. Well, I've been watching Red Zone since he's been hosting, and and I'll tell you that I, it changes the way you don't become a team fan because you're watching every team every Sunday sure. you become a fan of players yep because now every team is equally available to you sure so I'm not really I mean my dad's from the Dallas area so I would kind of raise a Dallas fan but then we grew up in LA I was a Rams fan in yeah. LA I was a big uh, uh, Raiders fan when they were there so you know those are the kinds of things but I only bring this up because it turns out if if you're as geeked out on sports and I, I, we do a much better job right now in our families raising up kids who embrace our sports yeah. teams isn't that true wow we raising sports fans that we do discipling christians so mm. for example we're trying to figure out should we sign obj for another season odell beckham jr he's he's got this he's got this you know ACL I, think he's, tear. I think i think he's too old i think he's past <laughs> so, the prime, okay honestly. so now we can we can have this discussion for half an hour right we know where he's played we know what his seasons were he made that great catch with playing for the giants but really did, how well did he play when you know throwing baker was throwing to him in cleveland we like we have all these details mm-hmm. in our head. we can make a case for why we should sign obj or not but we can't make a case for why we think that jesus is more than a created most christians are like well I'd, yep isn't that true yeah so, so we do a better job of catechizing our kids as sports fans than we do catechizing our kids as yeah. Christians. And you know why? It's because we're just geeked out on that stuff. So it turns out that I'll only let parents off the hook. I mean, I know that's my responsibility. Mm-hmm. So I, I had to share with a certain amount of passion what I believed about God. doesn't mean they're going to accept it. doesn't yeah. mean that they're... But at least I cannot uh, later on look back at it and say, well, yeah, they actually learned more about the Rams from me than they did about Jesus. Yeah. So we have to realize we are already teaching our kids stuff. The question is, are we just zoned in on this? Are we are we locked in? Are we this committed? Because by the way, your youth pastor is not responsible for this. Mm-hmm. And don't don't tell me you think that your kids were Christians until they went to college, and now suddenly they're not Christians. No, yeah, all yeah. the studies will tell you. You ask that college student, when did you drop out? He'll tell you 10 to 17, 10 to 17. That's wow. the range. Yep. That's why we talked about this two years ago yeah. on Lead Defend. I was just starting, I'd written three kids' books for eight to 12 year olds. Right. And I told you guys then, we need to start doing stuff for junior hires. Mm-hmm. And now here we've got a program for junior hires. Yep. We got to start there because it turns out if you're going to give your kids the glowing rectangle in junior high, yep. you better make sure they understand who Jesus is because they're going to learn about that from the glowing rectangle. Absolutely. Yep. So many on yeah. Instagram or, or TikTok, TikTok mm-hmm. that whether they're more progressive liberal pastors or that's right so-called pastors or even atheists raising up you know right. questionable claims about the Bible or history yep. of Jesus. Like, and they're even just kids doing powerful. sketchy things. Let's yeah, be yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. I think honestly, there's, there's all the stuff that social media yeah. brings us. I'm not, I'm not the kind of person to say I'll bury your phones, right? But I, I do think we got to get real about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I also wouldn't say we should stop making potato chips. Yeah, but I'm not gonna let my kids eat those for every meal. Yeah, and that's all they're gonna eat. Yeah. So I think there are some things sure. we know are out there that are uh, you know might be a guilty pleasure at times, and that's fine. 
but they cannot be a steady diet. And, yeah. and that's what we have to kind of decide with our phones what we're going to do with this. That's a good word. Hey, thank you so much for being on. Thank yeah, you for thank being you. a friend to lead defend. And we've had you in the state a couple of times and always love when you're a yeah, part. Glad to be a part. Hey, how, how could somebody find out more about you and, and the work you do? So we look at a, uh, look at Christianity from a detective's perspective on a website called coldcasechristianity.com. So we're looking at Christianity from a detective perspective. We flip that and we look at law enforcement from a Christian perspective on a website called the thin blue life. Hmm. .com. So you can find me at one of those two places. That's awesome. incredible. Jim, thank you so much. Yeah, this has been Ryan you. Brock with Lead Defend. See you And hey, we can't wait to see you next year at Lead Defend 2023. That's right. That's it for this episode of Lead Defend. To hear more episodes from the Lead Defend crew, visit absc.org slash podcasts. If you liked what you heard, rate and review us on your favorite podcast listening site. Want to learn more information about the next Lead Defend conference? Visit leaddefend.org.